Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're going to take you against the grain for the next couple of hours. And we have a lot to talk about today, which I'm going to get to a little bit later. But, you know, the fact that we have to start this show talking about the murder of 19 fourth graders and two teachers is just sickening, right? It's almost beyond words. I have a fourth grader of my own. And just the thought of of a death at that age of of your child times 19 for no good reason. As a teacher, fourth grade is the best, which is not relevant here, but it's just awful. And I don't think that we need to repeat, you know, what has been on the news constantly, who these kids are, who the adults are. You can... Uh, see their names and their photos online and hear what their families said about them and imagine what it would be like to have to identify your murdered child or imagine what kind of madness you have to have fallen into to be able to, you know, mm-hmm. perpetrate such a crime. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, spoke emotionally about this yesterday, understandably, as he knows what it's like to lose a child, uh, asking, you know, where in God's name is our backbone to have the courage to deal with and stand up to the lobbies. And I guess. In this, he is referring to the NRA, you know, he must be. And, you know, Michelle, I've read a lot about this kind of thing. The NRA is in a state of chaos right now. Yeah. I don't uh, know. LaPierre is is facing felony charges. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's he's stolen money from the organization. They don't have the strength, the power, the authority that they had even 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. let alone 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. So why do we still kneel before the uh, the the power of the great NRA? It or doesn't invoke make sense them? To I me. think. Yeah, I think so too. I, I don't mean to dismiss the power that they have had historically, but today, you know, I haven't heard anyone talking about the NRA since again since last year, right? Maybe a year and a half ago, right? When uh, Wayne Lapierre, you know, when those charges were dropped, and the thing is also. We are averaging more than one mass shooting a day in this country this year. Yes, right. And of course, the availability of guns has a lot to do with that. And the availability of these high capacity magazines that really I cannot think of another use for other than to kill a lot of human beings at once. Right. Yes. There's not that many deer in front of you. That's right. In a forest ever. And even if there were, you wouldn't use an AR-15 to hunt them. No, it's it's ridiculous. Right. And the shooter apparently bought the two guns. He brought to the Mm -hmm. scene legally. He bought hundreds of rounds of ammunition legally. But also, if you take them away and, you know, please do. Right. Absolutely. But we still live in a world where other countries have similar levels of guns per capita, not exactly the same kinds of guns. And I think that is really important. Um, But they don't have these events. And so when you take them away and again, by all means, do that. I support it. But we still have a problem to solve. And so when Joe Biden asks, where is our courage to stand up to the lobbies? I I hope that you include the health insurance lobby there, because why else is mental health care so expensive? You know, maybe Mm -hmm. you include the the charter school lobby, because why else are public schools given such short shrift? You include the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and their ilk standing in the way of things like paid leave, standing in the way of the PRO Act and other legislation that would help families earn enough money to take better care of their loved ones and to have more free time to pay attention to them. So, of course, we have outdated and ridiculous gun laws that absolutely should be changed. But I feel like there are also other changes to be made. That's not a but. That's an and. There are other changes that have to be made. Because how else did two 18-year-olds in one month slip so completely through the cracks that this level of uh, insanity didn't draw any attention? That's right. You know? 
I mean, this guy, he's 18. He's also dead now. And according to what we know that is sort of trickling out about him, he he sort of slowly dropped out of his own high school, the high school in the same town. Yes. Uh, Friends say he would often post pictures of guns on his Instagram stories. Mm -hmm. He talked about guns on other social media sites. Yes. No one had time to take notice? The cops would tell you, well, you know what? That's all true. But he hadn't committed a crime at that point. That it's uh, it's not illegal to post pictures of guns. It's not illegal to be weird. It's not illegal to be pissed off because you got thrown out of school. Nor and should it be, right? I, no, I don't nor should it be. Teams. And I understand yeah. all that. But we live in a society where we accept levels of violence, mm-hmm. especially violence against children, that is acceptable to no one else in the world, mm-hmm. right? We're the only ones. Who can go through a Sandy Hook and then pass no new legislation to try to ensure that a Sandy Hook doesn't happen again? Yeah. Well, it was inevitable that it was that I it would think happen again. That's a good point, John. Like you can have a gun when you're making your guns your whole your whole personality, sort of gl- glorifying this yes. particular tool that we all know, uh, you know, and we all know what it's capable of. I do. Th- yeah, I think that is a difference. So maybe, yeah. Sure, have a gun, take a picture of it, but maybe people should ask some questions about yes. it. And the other yes. thing is, we actually get these guns out of circulation in the general population, and absolutely, let's do it. You still have police departments with tanks. Yes. You know, tanks, tanks and machine guns bristling with weapons that we know they don't just get and go, oh, okay, I don't know what we're going to do with this. We'll put it in the cupboard and take right. it out when we need it. No, of right. course, when you have it, then, you you know. You have to use it. You have it. the hammer, you look for the nail. Exactly. Right? I also think it's very interesting that, uh, at least according to one Texas Department of Safety spokesperson, uh, the shooter, you know, as we know, he crashed his car in a ditch near the school. He yep. got out of the car with a rifle. He was engaged by law enforcement. I, I wanted to ask you if I had read that wrong. He was engaged by law enforcement. This is what this uh, uh, Texas Department of Public Safety uh, spokesperson, Eric Estrada, he Uh told Anderson Cooper this. It's, you know, it's been repeated all over. Yeah, he was engaged, engaged by law enforcement as he attempted to get into the school and he got in anyway and got into a classroom and killed most of the people in it. I don't understand. And so again, encountering good guys with guns. Uh, presumably, right? I don't know that any law enforcement in this country are walking around unarmed right. ever. Right. Didn't do anything to stop right. this. You know, there was an armed guard at Parkland. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. And he, so, ran, he ran away for his for his own safety. That's the thing. And so all of the people who were like, well, the thing to, the thing to do is arm teachers. Please. Right? And have an armed perimeter around school. It's just like, well, where does it stop then? Then everybody just gets issued a gun as they're born to, you know, have to shoot the next person who comes around the corner at them. It's, it's outrageous, right? So uh, how long is it going to take for the gun nuts to say, well, you know, if those children had been armed, this would have never happened. Mm-hmm. Because you know that that's coming. Yeah. It's coming eventually. Yeah. First, it's like, well, we need to arm. We need to have cops in the schools. Okay. Then we put cops in the schools. Uh, and then they have to be armed. Okay. Now they're armed. Now we need to have uh, arm the teachers. If the teachers were armed, this wouldn't happen. Okay. Then we're going to arm the teachers. And then it's going to happen again. Well, you know, if we arm the students, we wouldn't have these problems. It's it's a slippery slope. It's really it's stupid. Inevitable. It's really stupid. I mean, ideally, I would really like to see it become much more difficult uh, 
if not impossible, for regular people to get their hands on these weapons, but also for sure. law enforcement. Yes. Because, again, when you talk about other, you know, other countries actually don't have police officers walking around, you know. No. Strapped to no. the gills. I read recently that that perhaps something that might work that we haven't really examined is rather than to try to ban guns, which isn't going to work constitutionally, maybe we make buying bullets so expensive with taxation that it's prohibitive. You know, maybe bullets should be $10 each instead of a box for, you know, six bucks or whatever it is. Yeah. Maybe that's the way. Maybe. There's got to be. I mean, the thing is, this is not a problem that is impossible. No, to, there's not a technical hurdle here. No, right. No, there's not a legal hurdle. This is the a hur- policy hur- problem. Exactly. The hurdle is political mm-hmm. will. Right. Yes. It's a uh, yeah. So we are going to talk more about some other aspects of uh, this case later in the show. We're going to talk about the role of of media and social media, right? And mm-hmm. how do you cover something like this without glorifying it? Right. How are copycats inspired? How can we prevent that? Uh, We are also going to talk about other issues. We're going to talk about China suggesting its own security pacts in its region and the predictable hysterical response. I expect that to get. We'll talk about the U.S. and Turkey butting heads over Syria. We are going to talk about this consequential um, Fifth Circuit court decision that could undermine our whole regulatory infrastructure in very weird and interesting ways. We'll talk about uh, an interesting uh, death penalty decision by the Supreme Court. There's there's a lot to get into. Yes, indeed. And, you know, there's something else that came up, too, in this Sussman trial, this Michael Sussman trial here in Washington. I honestly believed this was going to be a two or three day thing. Right. Oh, all kinds of people are showing up. It's it's like it's the never ending trial for for a process crime. So interesting development yesterday. Um, it's been dragging on, but we've learned some interesting things. An FBI agent already under scrutiny over claims that he withheld key information in this crossfire hurricane investigation. He admitted yesterday to a screw up that led other agents to believe that a probe of Trump-Russia bank ties uh, was spurred by the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. So he called this a paperwork mistake. Uh, The the guy's name is is Curtis Heidi. He's an FBI agent. He testified yesterday that he told colleagues in a memo that the Justice Department had developed information that the Trump campaign had been communicating with Russia's Alpha Bank using a secret server. That was not only untrue, but the information originated with the Clinton campaign and was delivered to the Justice Department through Sussman or by Sussman. In the DOJ paperwork, Sussman was identified only as an anonymous third party. They didn't say Sussman, the, the Clinton campaign's attorney came to us and said X. Yeah. They said an anonymous third party has informed the Justice Department that. And yeah. none of it was true. Yeah. And you have uh, had, you know, testimony already in this case by officers saying, I mean, one, I looked into this. It, it didn't show there wasn't anything there. But had I known who it came from, exactly. I would have also, you know, like that would have been good to know. Exactly. It wouldn't have made, you know, I still found these claims to be uh, unsupported Specious. by what he offered That's to right. me. Yeah. And then when asked um, 
if if there was fallout for his career, he said, yes, he said, I'm under disciplinary um, investigation right now. So this FBI agent could actually lose his job. Mm -hmm. And then they asked him directly, well, why did you say that the information had been developed from by the Justice Department? And he said, I don't know. In my mind, I equated the FBI general counsel's office with the Justice Department. He said, I should have asked where the information came from. Yeah. And he didn't feel like you should have. Uh-huh. It's interesting. The The original, um, you know, the, the original take on this trial was that it was going to be a heavy lift to get, um, yeah. to, you know, heavy lift for Durham. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not sure, sure either. either this, yeah, I'm not sure either. The other thing that's happening today is uh, the FDA in congressional co- crosshairs, at least over this baby formula yeah. shortage. FDA Commissioner Robert Califf is testifying before a House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee today, uh, but he released his prepared testimony last night on what appear to be a, just a string of failures related to the Abbott Nutrition Plant that produces so much of this country's formula. He's going to testify that mailroom problems caused a whistleblower's report on food safety program uh, problems at the plant that was sent in October to not reach the then commissioner or other officials, uh, despite being sent directly to them for months. The FDA didn't interview the whistleblower until December, but it had also gotten reports of a baby sickened by bacteria in baby formula in September from the state of Minnesota, which also sent it information about the plant where the formula was made. Mm -hmm. Right. And since then, several more babies were made sick uh, by bacteria and uh, two of them died. And so now the FDA's timeline is being scrutinized because now, of course, in addition to having that tragedy, we have a, a supply issue, as we've been talking about for months. Um, the whistleblower report languished for months, as did that information sent by the Minnesota uh, Department of Health. The FDA didn't inspect the plant until January, but it also didn't even talk about supply chain interruptions until three days before the plant shut down. Mm-hmm. And it didn't get in touch with the Agriculture Department, which manages the WIC program that I learned today purchases about half the infant formula in the nation. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's the program for babies in low-income families. That's it serves right. one, 1. 1.2 million babies from low-income families. That's just way too many. Wow. That's going to say, uh, I'm going to say that's 1.2 million babies too many. Too many. That's uh, right. In, in poor families. Half the baby formula in the nation is purchased by a program that supports low-income families. I feel like that My God. has to illustrate a much bigger problem than a temporary shortage of formula. Anyway, wow. it didn't even inform WIC about uh, the possible interruption here until a week before the plant shut down. So WIC didn't have any time to account for the loss of the plant's outfoot, output. I mean, and also, why does Abbott control 42% of the U.S. baby formula market? Right. I thought we were supposed to have, you know, why, why do we even have antitrust legislation? You know, anti-monopoly legislation. It's ridiculous. Do you remember I mentioned a week ago or two weeks ago how um, there were some people who have allergies like to everything, to all foods. And even though they're they're not babies or infants, they're older, Mm -hmm. they have to survive on baby formula through tubes that go down their noses or directly into their stomachs. Mm -hmm. I read an article yesterday about a father who drove a thousand miles to buy a case of formula for his six-year-old son Uh, that needs it to survive. Oh, that's so sad. 
This is a very serious problem. Yeah, this is a serious problem. You know, you already have some of these uh, House committee uh, members saying the FDA just dropped the ball at every single stage of this. But, you know, I think so, of course, the FDA is going to get grilled. Caliph himself is going to get grilled. You know, there will be lots of looking into all this. I think the fact that you have one manufacturer that has nearly half the market is a problem that is unfortunately just going to be ignored. And the revelation that WIC buys half the formula in this country is also, oh, well, that's just that's just status quo. So who cares? Sorry for a pretty depressing opening. We're going to get into some more, <laughs> I hope, some more slightly uh, slightly more cheerful conversations later in the show. We'll see. I hope so. We're going to take a quick break here and come back. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with Michelle Witte. Ukraine's foreign minister this morning issued an urgent appeal for multiple launch rocket systems because they apparently don't have any. As uh, President Zelensky accused the West of, quote, lacking unity, unquote, over the war, citing different positions on weapon systems to Ukraine and disagreements within NATO. Italy's prime minister, in concert with the U.N. secretary general, proposed a peace plan that Russia immediately dismissed as fantasy, although the foreign ministry in Moscow said that they actually had not yet received it and hadn't yet read it, but they dismissed it as fantasy. And Swedish and Finnish delegations met with Turkish diplomats in Ankara today to discuss Turkish concerns over the two Nordic countries' NATO accession at least their applications. Meanwhile, the U.S. said that it opposes any Turkish military action in Syria. Turkey said recently that it would move back into Syria to create a land bridge between two Turkish-occupied enclaves, and China announced that it would initiate an international security pact with 10 or 11 Asian countries. We're joined by Dr. Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's the managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. Welcome back, Jeremy. Oh, we're very glad to have you. So apparently we haven't been sending enough aid to Ukraine. Uh, The Ukrainian government wants multiple rocket launchers and is taking to task the Western alliance because it's not pro-Ukraine enough. Uh, what do you make of this? I thought they were pretty darn pro-Ukraine. Well, I, I think this is yeah, rather pathetic. I mean, the U.S. has provided billions. Of, you know, the, the Biden administration on Saturday signed off on a $40 billion arms package, right. uh, including, I think, howitzers are being provided. Right. Uh, so, I mean, this is just unbelievable level of weaponry i mean it ultimately uh, points to the weakness of that government i mean if they uh, you know uh, have to rely on foreign uh, foreigners uh, to sustain their government you know uh that's it's a, a weak and you know sad regime it's sad what it become of ukraine and i think this conflict could have been resolved a long time ago but it's that mentality uh, of the zelensky government uh, that has prevented a, a diplomatic solution with russia 
and Ukraine for making concessions. Instead, they want to you know, fight to the death. Yeah. And it's causing the, the suffering of the Ukrainian people. You know, uh, off topic just a little bit, I gave an interview last night to uh, RT, which I do at least once a week. They they call me every once in a while for a comment on something. And um, and they they asked me why they see in the U.S. media so frequently this notion that the U.S. wants to fight to the last Ukrainian. And I said, oh, sure. I said, we see that in the in the American media all the time. And they said, but what does that mean? Why would Americans say that? And I said, because almost all of the money that's appropriated by Congress for the Ukrainian war effort goes directly to U.S. defense contractors. It's not that we write this big check and present it to the Ukrainian government and then they go cash the check. The money goes to U.S. defense manufacturers. And so... After 9-11, we transitioned into a really a permanent wartime economy. And so if there isn't a war to prop up our defense uh, contractors and defense manufacturers, we're going to slide into recession. And so we want this war as a policy. We want this war to go on forever so that we can continue propping up the defense contractors. And it was like this light went off. Uh, at, at RT. They just hadn't considered that we're so cynical in our foreign policy that we would want wars to go on indefinitely. But that's that's the vibe that I'm getting here. We, we want to be able to provide all these different weapons and weapon systems to the Ukrainians because it's good for our economy. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think that that's really sad. I mean, there has to be a revolution in the United States. I mean, that's simply unacceptable. Uh, we can't have a foreign policy uh, run in that way. Uh, it's, you know, in this case, it's an extremely dangerous situation that could result in, in a world war. Uh, and it's just the, the epitome of, of human callousness and cruelty, you know, where profit and greed is placed above uh, human life mm -hmm. and results in these uh, calamities. And I think the other fact to play here is is the desire to bog down bleed the russians uh because right. there's there is a uh, imperial drive to dominate uh the entire eurasian region and the putin government was you know a stronger more nationalistic government and the u.s wants to go back you know the u.s elites want to go back to the days of boris yeltsin uh mm -hmm. who is more acquiescent to u.s you know, corporate interests uh so that's an added factor uh as to why yeah they want this war to go on indefinitely and they don't want to negotiate and i think uh, it's it's you know the cro we see a lot of crocodile tears the suffering of the Ukrainian people, but those are the same interests behind that suffering, the military-industrial complex, yes. as you suggest. Yes, indeed. Jeremy, what is this lack of unity that Zelensky is talking about? It seems to me that the West has been incredibly unified, as much so as at any time really since the fall of the Soviet Union. What, what more does he want? Where does he see cracks in the, in the alliance? Yeah, and I would say almost you know pathetically unified. There had been a lack of dissent. Yes. It's been very disturbing to see figure like Bernie Sanders and the squad and uh, Barbara Lee who voted against the war appropriation mm -hmm. for uh, the war on terror and just align behind U.S. policy and, uh, and support that huge billion-dollar aid package when, as you point out in your last segment, the, the American people are increasingly suffering third-world-like conditions with lack of baby formula, the price of gasoline, 
gasoline has gone up. That's in part a product of sanctions uh, imposed on Russia. Uh, so, you know, this war is actually causing further economic hardship for the American people yeah. and diverting money from spending on where it's needed, including in infrastructure and education here in the United States. And there's no dissent at all. Yeah. The, the so-called progressives are, are backing this huge uh, – it's like $100 million a week or something is going into that uh, you know, quagmire, just like you know, billions were wasted in Afghanistan, and there's almost no dissent uh, in the political elites. And that's why I say you know, it may sound radical, but we need a political revolution. And uh, yeah, I, you know, Zelensky is just a puppet of uh, the West, and I think he's betrayed his own people. Henry Kissinger said yesterday that the only way there's going to be peace between Russia and Ukraine is for Ukraine to cede the Donbass and Crimea uh, to Russia and to pledge uh, neutrality. That's what many of us have been saying since the beginning, including the Russians, right? I mean, that's the, that was the basis of the Minsk Accords. Uh, it's also what I would call realpolitik. Uh, do you think that that's where we'll end up? Well, I would hope so. Yeah, and I think you know Kissinger has an ugly record, but yeah, he sure you know, he's a smart man. And at times, he does you know have very uh, smart things to say. So, you know, he's worth worth hearing out. In this case, I think yeah, he's right on the mark, and I think that is a feasible solution. Uh, that Ukraine, you know, I think Ukraine at one point Zelensky was supporting the Minsk Accord, right? And he was when he campaigned for the uh, you know a higher office. That was his platform, I think, to to uh, end the hostilities and to you know uh, agree to some kind of workable solution that would uh, be in the interest of both countries. And yeah, I mean, if you look at history, I mean, Russia has you know Crimea was historically part of Russia. They have a major naval base there. The Donbass region is you know, strongly connected with Russia culturally, uh, linguistically, and economically. So uh, th this would be a, a workable formula that makes sense and that could end the fighting and suffering of the Ukraine people. But unfortunately, as you're pointing out, uh, this cynical uh, uh, strategy and interests uh, that want a permanent war and that uh, are so greedy and selfish that they only care about their own profit mm -hmm. margins – uh, which I guess you know is the purpose of corporations to make money. They're they're not humanistic endeavors, so they really don't care how they make that money. In this case, uh, you know they've been able to warp uh, U.S. foreign policy, uh, and it's resulting in permanent war and the rejection of um, feasible and practical diplomatic solutions. Unfortunately, yeah, the Biden administration is not pursuing those solutions. Yeah. The former president of Moldova was arrested yesterday on corruption charges. His name is Igor Dodon. Um, he was seen as pro-Russian. And the Kremlin is arguing today that these are trumped up charges and that they could cause cause Moldova to be, I guess it's Moldova. I've it's been Moldova. in Moldova. Yeah, I've Moldova. been corrected already. Uh, could cause Moldova to be drawn into the Ukraine conflict. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Is this something that that people should be focused on? Yes, I think that's a concern. You know, these are a very a very politicized. These allegations about corruption. I mean, we've seen that in Russia. You know, there have been myriad allegations against Putin 
Uh, from my understanding, most of the allegations are never are not proven uh-huh. against Putin. Uh, there is, of course, corruption within the Russian government, but there was massive corruption under Boris Yeltsin uh, that was provable, uh, you know, compared to Putin. So, I mean, it's just you know very politicized. Like you know, Navalny, uh, you know, Putin's opponent, mm-hmm. uh, had this anti-corruption group and was trying to smear Putin. And if you look into it, Navalny, maybe himself corrupt. So, I mean, it's just become this like you know, it's extremely politicized. So, I don't know all the detail with Dodon. I mean, I, I have followed Moldova politics a little bit. I know that the National Endowment for Democracy was supporting his opponent, mm-hmm. who's more pro-West, uh, pro-NATO, you know, in support of, of Ukraine. So, I know there was an agenda against him, and the U.S. was involved in efforts to uh, you know block his his remain. Power, mm-hmm. uh, so the, these uh, corruption allegations could be very politicized. Now, there's often corruption endemic in governments, so he may very well have been corrupt. Uh, but you know, the other side may be just as corrupt, or he may be clean. You know, I, I I don't know for sure in his case, but I do know this is very politicized, and this will be used to try and fortify the current. Moldovan government, mm-hmm. which is allied with uh, the Ukraine and the U.S. side in the new Cold War, and I think that's what what should concern people uh, is this you know politicization and this you know it's kind of like you know many analysts are warning that we're like on the eve of World War One where these alliances are being solidified, uh, laying the groundwork for for a major war. So. Uh, and yeah, you know, if this war in Ukraine expands into Moldova and other countries, it takes on the appearance more and more of a world war. So I think that's all very, very dangerous. And we should be skeptical of any news reports until we see any concrete information uh, of actual corruption. So the Swedes and the Finns are in Ankara with uh, hats in hand today. The Turks have been clear as to what they want in exchange for uh, supporting NATO accession for these two countries. They're not likely to get it, at least not in the near term. Um, They're asking for, well, they're asking for a lot more from Sweden than they are from Finland. They're asking for the Swedes to expel Turkish and Kurdish dissidents, many of whom over the years have become Swedish citizens so that they can be prosecuted uh, in Turkey. That is never going to happen. Uh, do you see this NATO application dragging out like North Macedonia did? Uh, North Macedonia took, what, 25, 30 years before the Greeks finally lifted their objection. Uh, this could go 10, 20, 30 years before the Turks lift their objection. Uh, for new countries to join NATO, of course, the vote has to be unanimous. It's not going to be unanimous because of Turkey. How do you see this playing out? Well, yeah, it may drag on, and you know that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the you know NATO alliance, as I think we've discussed on this program, has been very you know problematic. I mean, it was supposed to you know protect you know security of Europe, uh, yeah. and but I mean, as we've seen, it's done the opposite. It's, it's certainly, from a Russian point of view, is seen as a hostile, threatening, aggressive alliance. It's been involved in aggression in foreign countries like Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Libya. Uh, so, you know, it's trying to build this, uh, you know, massive coalition. Uh, but, you know, there are always going to be some divisions uh, uh, between countries and enmities. Uh, so in some ways, it's it's meeting its own limits. 
that it could only you know, expand so much before some of these internal uh, factionalism uh, uh, play out. And that could only be a good thing if it, if it ultimately weakens the alliance, because I think ultimately uh, we need a new security architecture that would include Russia and China, uh, whereas NATO is, is hostile and aggressive uh, towards uh, Russia and China and threatens a world war at this juncture. Yeah, let's talk about China for a minute. China said that it would pursue a Pacific-wide deal with almost a dozen island nations covering policing, security, and data communications cooperation. Uh, This is a Chinese idea. This isn't something that these little teeny tiny island countries went to China uh, to, to propose. At least one of the countries that's invited to discuss this next week, Fiji, is pushing back, saying that such an agreement would initiate a Cold War between China and Australia, and most of these little countries are dependent on on Australia for their security. So first, what do you think the Chinese are trying to do here? And what do you think the response is going to be in the end? Well, what the Chinese are trying to do is very clear. Uh, the response to U.S. Uh, provocation, and the you know, starting with the pivot to Asia of the Obama administration, which I thought was a disastrous policy that has been expanded on by Trump and Biden, mm-hmm. and Biden in particularly uh, aggressive uh, toward China, and, and saying recently he would defend Taiwan militarily, and the U.S. has encircled China with military bases. You know, the, the pivot idea was to ramp up U.S. military forces in the Asia Pacific uh, with the goal of countering China. So China is obviously going to respond. Uh, they're a rising economic power, uh, and they feel threatened, much like Russia has felt threatened with NATO expansion. And so they're going to try and form their own security alliances, uh, including with these Pacific islands where you know, the U.S. has many military bases uh, on those islands. Some have been subjected to nuclear testing that's been horrible for the environment. Uh, so, I mean, I think, yeah, some of those countries may want to remain neutral because they see a danger in aligning with China. Uh, others may uh, welcome alliance with China against the United States, which is kind of losing uh, a lot of uh, stature and influence. And we see that also like in the Solomon Islands was concluded a big yes. deal with China that I know has rankled the Australians. You know, Australia uh, has allied uh, strongly with the U.S. and U.K. in this uh, AUKUS pact. Uh, and again, this is all, I think, very dangerous. It's what analysts are saying, you know, proceed the First World War where countries are forming these uh, alliances against one another, uh, and it can only lead, you know, to to the outbreak of war in the future. So, uh, we need to rethink. I think the, you know, again, the I think the the pivot to Asia policy, the huge military buildup, was a disaster from the beginning. China never threatened American interests. In fact, you know, China's economic expansion in recent decades really presents an opportunity for U.S greater U.S. trade uh, and economic ties with China. Instead, we you know, view China as a threat uh, and adopting this military approach. So I think within the United States, there has to be a progressive movement that challenges U.S. foreign policy and pushes for uh, an end to the military buildup, uh, retra- retraction of U.S. forces, and the development of a cooperative relation with China. And I think that will alleviate the danger of war, nuclear war breaking out and pave the way for more peaceful world order in the future. You know, I, it's a mystery to me as to why so many Washington policymakers don't see that, because already our 
two economies, uh, the United States and China, are so intertwined that a problem with one is a problem with the other. And because we're so intertwined, you would think that that would that would force both sides, even if they didn't want to, um, to to initiate a, a foreign policy that is friendly and cooperative, if only for economic reasons. I, I really don't understand why we see uh, our relation with China, relationship really with China, to be. Um, one where military and defense come first and trade and economy come second. It doesn't make any sense to me. But it only makes sense if you consider what you're saying at the beginning, that the military industrial complex has completely warped U.S. foreign policy, and it's no longer a rational policy uh, or a policy that's uh, enacting the benefit of the American people, uh, let alone the benefit of, of world security or, or people around the world. And in fact, yeah, the U.S. economy is being now tremendously harmed because of the greed of these corporations and their ability to basically take over, hijack. Uh, in a sense, it's a coup d'état. Yeah. They took over the American political system and have hijacked the government for their own agenda and purposes, and they betrayed the American people. I think that's right. Well, thank you, Dr. Jeremy Kuzmarov. Jeremy is the managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. Stay tuned to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk about some politics. Welcome back to Radio Sputnik. Actually, I should say welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. That's right. We're the bosses here. We are the bosses. And we bring news, politics, and culture. What? Without the red and blue treatment. Unbelievable. John is so excited to talk about primary results. I, I am right so here. excited. I was just going <laughs> to say this is one. my favorite segment of the week. We told you we were going to have a little bit of fun. <laughs> Donald Trump's political brand was dealt a serious blow yesterday uh, in Georgia and in Alabama. In the Georgia primaries, Governor Brian Kemp just walloped Trump-endorsed David Perdue. And in the race for Georgia, Secretary of State incumbent Brad Raffensperger crushed Trump-endorsed candidate Jody Heiss. Neither race was close. I mean, like 79, 21 it and 68, Oh, yeah. yeah. Huge. And in the Alabama Senate race, Trump endorsed Katie Britt, ended ahead of Representative Mo Brooks, but not by enough to avoid a runoff. So in, in the next couple of months, there's going to be uh, the runoff for that race. In other races, Herschel Walker won his Senate nomination easily. Uh, which made Democrats very happy. Marjorie Taylor Greene won her congressional nomination very easily. She got about 80%. Uh, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders easily won the Arkansas gubernatorial nomination. In Texas, the scene of yesterday's horrific school shooting, Representative Henry Cuellar appears to have narrowly 
defeated progressive opponent Jessica Cisneros, although Cisneros has not conceded the race. And you know I mean, what I love? I love that he's taking on this kind of Trump persona, like, hey, I won. I won. Yes, I would congratulate me. I won. And everybody's like, well, wait a minute. We haven't finished counting the votes. (laughs) And you're only ahead by 700. And so relax. Right. The the anticipated outstanding votes are kind of in his his area. Yeah, actually, let's let's talk about that one. uh, First, I've got uh, I've got some of the, the Texas numbers in front of me right now. Let me pull up that house race. So with 94 percent of the vote counted. It's Cuellar, 50.2, and Cisneros, 49.8. They are separated by 173 votes. 173 votes. Cisneros is going to demand a recount. She's going to have to. She's going to have to demand a recount. And it's just, you know, it's stunning to me. And as a campaigner for many years, it's, I keep saying this, you know, Campaigns matter yeah. and elections have consequences. Yes. And when you look at these races, the amount of money that goes into them, and it comes down to these 150 votes, yeah. 200 votes, you know, how and, much does... You figure in a, in a congressional district like that, there have to be 300, 400 precincts. So that's just one, one vote, half, a half of a vote per precinct, you know, talk about turnout. Yeah. Changing and, a, a and race. And so much of this stuff is one on the margins. You know, you yes. don't know. It, it could be like a Trump endorsement that keeps a few people out. It could be something like this shooting in Texas yeah. that maybe keeps some a few home or shifts support just enough. Yes. I mean, it's really difficult. And, you know, there's another race. Uh, Texas is 15th. It's it's not been controversial because there's no um, incumbent there. Uh it's also a majority Hispanic district. You have two Democrats running against each other in the primary. One got 50.1, the other 49.9. They are separated by 12 votes. 12 votes. Um, there was another Texas race that you and I were talking about offline that I wanted to mention. Texas has a very controversial attorney general, Ken Paxton. Ken Paxton is, uh, has been indicted on multiple felony charges of corruption. And um, what he did when he was first accused of corruption is he fired all of the whistleblowers in his office who alleged that he was corrupt and who provided information to the FBI. Okay, that's a violation of the of the Federal Whistleblower Protection Act. So George P. Bush, who you might remember as the little brown one, That's what his grandfather called him way back in the day. George P. Bush has actually become a respected figure in Texas. He got himself elected. um, I think it was like land commissioner or railroad commissioner. I mean, those are actually pretty important positions in Texas. And he announced that he was going to run for attorney general against Ken Paxton, against Ken Paxton, who is awaiting his felony trial. Paxton got 68 percent yesterday. To Bush's 32%. Um, they're divided by 333,000 votes. I think that the Bush family as a political force in Texas is finished. Yeah. It's, it's so all over. The war in Iraq and the, um, yeah, that, that was probably a problem for the Bush family. And I don't think there's an appetite among the American electorate to engage in any kind of troop activity yeah. overseas. And so those guys are going to lose every time. 
It seems I, to I me. I think so. I think people are done. Now, getting back to Georgia, um, we we have talked a lot over the previous weeks about Kemp versus Purdue. You know, Kemp is the incumbent governor, of course, who refused to overturn the election for Donald Trump. So Donald Trump talked former Senator David Perdue into running against Kemp. Uh, now, Perdue is is very well known in Georgia. He was a U.S. Mm-hmm. senator. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he only got 21.8%. Oh, I know. I mean, this is after Donald Trump told everybody, go to the polls and vote for David Perdue. I think this is like we've been talking about is stop the steal going to be a campaign winner. And I don't think so. I think this is going to be a problem for the Republicans. It suppresses turnout. If you believe that the system's rigged against you, that's not going to fire you up to go vote. Now, there may be other elements of the Trump platform that may trigger folks sure. like Ted had pointed out, you know, Trump is has ignited the uh, the Republican Party. He's important to the Republican Party. Yep. But I don't think it's good. He's going to be any more important than other formers that come out and endorse and, and join candidates I, on the I campaign agree. trail. I think that's that's the next step. Mm-hmm. And Kemp, you know, he's a well-liked Republican. Yes, he is. He, he's as bad as Republican as you can be. I mean, they oh, yeah. the this, whole... is, this is no, you know, closet liberal we're talking about oh, here. No. And he's well-liked and he's well-liked on how he handled COVID, you know, while he was on the campaign trail. He talked a lot about that. He let businesses, he gave them the option, do you want to open or not? Right. And he would often recount a story from an entrepreneur, hairdresser, has a salon, and she would say, you know, there's a 5% chance that I could get COVID and get very sick, mm-hmm. but there's like a 95% probability that I could lose my business mm-hmm. and everything else. Mm-hmm. And that resonates with Republicans sure. because it's an economic issue. Sure. And ultimately it's, you know, it's kitchen table stuff. And Kemp was really effective in that way. Well, he's now going to face a rematch with Stacey Abrams. Mm-hmm. He barely beat Stacey Abrams last night. It was or last uh, election four years ago. It was by fewer than 50,000 votes, which in a statewide race is very close. Um, the latest polls show him beating Abrams by four five or six percentage points. So even though this is a rematch, you well, know, that, I, I think this fight with a little Trump, bit, right? Yeah, it's narrowed a little bit. Mm-hmm. But this fight with Trump uh, has really boosted him. And if I were mm-hmm. Donald Trump, I'd be a little bit worried about that. Yeah. So let's go over to. Oh, let's talk some more about uh, Georgia, right? Because yeah. we got Herschel Walker. That's where okay. I was going next. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Uh, <laughs> sir, uh, Herschel Walker got 68.2% of the vote. 68.2. Raphael Warnick, of course, running virtually unopposed, got 96%. Warnick is popular. He His reputation is as a very hard worker. And. Uh, We've we've been very clear about Herschel Walker's negatives. Well, when you're in a room with Raphael Warnock, you feel like this. I mean, he just exudes authenticity. Yeah. You know, and I think voters really connect well with that. Herschel Walker. Did you hear his acceptance speech last night? He goes, oh, people like me because I'm not a politician. I don't talk like a politician. I don't dress like a politician. Right. And that's why he said that he opposes abortion under any, any circumstances, circumstance. including rape, incest, or danger to the life of the mother. And then Mitch McConnell had to come out and say, whoa, big fella. Yeah. We're not going that far. Right. 
And you've got to know that there are a lot of outside groups that are supporting Stacey Abrams, who's very much pro-choice. And I think this whole Roe v. Wade thing is going to even attract more money and bolster her, you know, I mean, her ground game. Yeah. And that's where this is going to be won. We know Absolutely. this, right? It's all Camp about was effective because he was all over the state, you know, talking to voters. And and I think Democrats, Stacey Abrams is great at that, too. They're going to have yes. that whole state covered. Uh, in canvassing and getting the vote out. And I think Agreed. that the abortion uh, issue is going to really move things forward. And there's a real tension within the, you know, the establishment and the progressives on this. But yes. Yeah. Well, in this secretary of state race, this is another one that Donald uh, Trump jumped into. Uh, he was furious that the incumbent um, Raffensperger. Raffensperger. Mm-hmm. Uh, wouldn't overturn the wouldn't race. Find eleven thousand seven hundred and right. Find votes. find the votes. Yeah, find the votes. Give me the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this this guy Heiss ran against him for a while. This race looked close. In the end, it wasn't really close. Uh, Raffensperger won fifty two point three to Heiss's thirty three point four. Uh, it's a difference of like two hundred and twenty five thousand votes. Yeah, not really a race in the end. So yesterday, at least in Georgia, uh, there was some real humbling going on. I, I did want to bring up uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, we have to talk about her. You know, I said yesterday that um, that pollsters said she was very popular until they read her quotes to to voters. Right. So she was she was looking at eighty percent. um 80% of people said, oh, yeah, we like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And then they say, but, you know, she said this, that, and the other thing. And then they said, oh, no, we don't like her anymore, 41 to 41. Well, she just crushed Strahan. Uh, 69.5 to 16.9. Marjorie Taylor Greene got 72,000 votes to 17,500 for Strahan. Yeah, it's interesting because she's so crushed her. So Trump, right? Wow. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Trump. And then, you know, and also in Georgia, the race that caught my eye was this uh, with Lucy Macbeth, right? Prevailing over Carolyn Bordeaux. And that's really interesting because that was a result of redistricting. So that's a yes. representative against a representative. Yes. What caught my eye about it was that one, you know, Macbeth is a. Um, She's more progressive and she had the support of AOC and Bernie Sanders. And then Carolyn Badeau had the support of, um, you know, groups like No Labels. Right. And if you remember during the Build Back Better bill in the infrastructure bill, you know, Biden wanted to put all this together as one big omni spending bill. Yes. And there were a group of like nine members of the Congress, mm-hmm. along with Manchin. That said, no, we want to separate this thing out because infrastructure will pass. It's not going to all pass. So yes. Once the infrastructure bill passed, then, of course, Build Back Better went to die, went to the graveyard. Yes. So um, a lot of progressives are like really worked up over this because how are you going to get anything done? Mm-hmm. Right. How are you going to win a race? How are you going to convince people to vote for you if you can't get anything done legislatively that's really going to help people? Right. So Macbeth won that race. But also what's interesting about her background is um, her 17-year-old son was shot and killed in 2012. 
in a dispute over loud music. Uh, she first ran in 2018 in the Atlanta suburbs with a prominent, uh, as a prominent of gun of gun control with the support of every town for gun safety. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, how much of this is going to impact a lot of the, you know, some of these races? Because, I mean, she, you know, that's really kind of a close connection to the whole gun debate, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're fighting against this establishment and the no labels is a large um, super PAC that's funded by Reed Hoffman, who owns yes. LinkedIn. Yes. Right. And then you have the more progressive super PACs that are supported by Bernie Sanders and the such. So I think that's going to be the battle between these two super PACs. But the no labels has really been behind a lot of the representatives that are that were opposed to the Build Back Better because of the funding that they get from Silicon Valley and various, uh, it's just where the money's coming from. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Um, Alabama. So Katie Britt, who uh, Trump endorsed after unendorsing Mo uh, Brooks, Katie Britt won the race, but fell significantly below 50%. So there's going to be a runoff. She ended up with 44.7%. Brooks, 29.2, and Durant, 23.3. So Durant's out of the race. Uh, But Durant got 150,500 votes. If Brooks can get two-thirds of those, he could still win this race. Uh, The the runoff is going to take place in the next uh, couple of months. And, uh, I mean, to tell you the truth, from a policy perspective, it doesn't make any difference who wins this race. Because Brit is pro-Trump and Brooks is pro-Trump. Brooks is a little nuttier. He's more like Paul Gosar, right? Or or uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, and Brit was the chief of staff to Senator Richard Shelby. So she's kind of a, a, a Capitol Hill player, an insider. Frankly, you know, if I were a Republican... Mm-hmm. I would go with Brit just because she knows how the sausage is made yeah, on yeah. Capitol Hill. And she's not going to be yelling in front of some TV camera somewhere no. or trying to get herself trending on Twitter. Yeah. So uh, that, that's going to be that's going to be an interesting one uh, to watch. Uh, what else do we have going over to Arkansas? I'm going to make this quick because we only have a couple of uh, we only have a couple of minutes. You will remember, of course, uh, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Well, yeah, she's kind of like Arkansas political royalty there. Isn't she, she is. I mean, her, her father was Governor Huckabee. Right. Uh, now of, of Fox News or wherever he is, Newsmax or whatever. Um, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, although she was Trump's first, um, first uh, press secretary or whatever, uh, White House spokesperson, Um, She left relatively early on in the administration because she saw a political life for herself. Well, she got 83.2% yesterday. She carried every single county in the state of of Arkansas. And um, it's funny, she got 288,000 votes. The Democrat who won the race with 70.5% only got 66,000 votes. So 288,000 to 66,000. I would say Sarah Huckabee Sanders is going to be the next uh, governor of Arkansas. Yeah. 
Yeah. The Huckabees are back. So I'm, I'm not even sure when the next primaries are. I mean, there are primaries pretty much every, every Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. Who's up next week? I'm going to I'm going to look right now. Uh, to, uh, 31st. Um, sorry. Sorry, everybody. I should have prepared for this. <laughs> uh, let's see. Hey, you know what? Why don't we take a break here? Because it's 1 p.m. Yeah, and we can do you that. guys finish. This fun segment okay. in the next hour. That sounds good. We're the bosses here. We're going to take a That's quick right. break it's on political. That's right. It's our show. Exactly. That's what I keep telling you, John. Exactly. We're going to take a break here on Political Misfits. We're going to come back and talk more politics and primaries in our second hour. Excellent. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. And we'll talk to you in just a minute. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host Michelle Witte and Ray Valencia, our Sputnik, Sputnik news analyst and producer. We were going to, I wanted to finish this thought about primaries. There are no primaries next week, okay? I don't know why. It's one <laughs> of those quirks in the, in the calendar. But the following week, uh, June 7th, there are primary elections in California, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, and South Dakota, seven states where there are major races on the ballot. I'm going to, I want to point out one thing. What's um, the most competitive in those? South Dakota attorney general's race. The South Dakota attorney general is a guy by the name of Jason Ravensborg, right? Jason Ravensborg was an up and coming politician mm -hmm. who was going to be governor and then he was going to be president until he got drunk and ran over a guy on a bicycle and then drove away. The man's glasses ended up in his car. Oh, my God. And there was a lot of controversy over. He said he thought it was a he said he thought it was a deer. It was a deer. He didn't know what had happened. Yeah. yeah. Guy on yeah. a bike. Yeah. yeah, he thought he was a deer. He just drove home. Yeah. With the guy's glasses in his car. Um, his story was just simply not credible. It just wasn't believable. I don't think anything's happened to him, though. No. I mean, they had a whole, they He's had still like the attorney general. Yeah, yeah, no, I think they found that he wasn't, somehow he wasn't at fault. Yeah, because it wasn't reported until the next morning, and by then the alcohol had worked its way out of his system. Mm, mm -hmm. okay. So they wanted to get him on a DUI charge. Or leaving the scene of an accident or whatever. And they're like, well, we Isn't can't he really. coming from, I remember we talked a lot about this story. He was coming from a political event. I mean, it yes. seemed like he was, you know, you think, okay, you have to be drunk to just hit somebody on the road. But it was sure. a very dark stretch of highway. And he was coming from some event, right? Some kind of uh, official function, yes. I think. And he he obviously claims that he, he wasn't drinking and wasn't yes. drunk. So I don't right. know, you know, yeah. Right. So even the Republicans now are like, you know what, this is you you can't you can't just pretend this didn't happen. Yeah. And so uh, that's going to be a race that that I'd like to watch. California is is a mess, right? They're, they've lost two congressional seats because of redistricting. 
everybody's bugging out of California. It's expensive. The homeless problems exploded. The big cities have high crime. I'm from California. I feel yeah. like I got out just in time, to be I, honest with I you. I love it there. But I love it. But even so. on my most recent trip, I was like, wow, what is happening to California? It was shocking. So we're going we're gonna to have to watch some races there as, you know, Democrats are thrown in with other Democrats. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we've been watching this transformation of Orange County, which used to be solidly Republican. Oh, solidly Republican. And then Republican. became mm-hmm. universally Democrat. And now it's becoming, it's trending kind of Republican again. It's, you know, California is interesting, very much like Pennsylvania. You know, yeah. you move away from the coast, you go east of the Interstate 5, and right. it starts looking a lot more red. Yes. I come from a district very Closely linked to uh, Kevin McCarthy. You yes. know, I grew up in the Fresno area. Right. Uh, he's from Bakersfield, but very similar politics. A lot of Hispanics, you know, um, and I think Democrats tend to get the Hispanic vote wrong and how they campaign to Hispanics. I think you're exactly right. You know, I grew up lis- with my elders listening to Fox News. Uh, a lot of Hispanics feel like, you know, we got here legally. We work really hard. Yes. We're in that merchant class. They're, they're socially conservative. They're socially conservative. And um, yeah, you know, don't make the assumption that because yeah. you're Hispanic. And whatever you do, if you're the Democratic Party, don't take Hispanics for granted. Right. And I think we're learning that in Texas, too. Right. I, I think mean, I think especially in especially Texas, in you know, Texas. for the last 20, 25 years, Democrats have been saying, oh, Texas is turning purple. As soon as it turns blue, the Republicans are never going to win a national but race you know, again. When Biden, okay, well, it's yeah, not purple. During it's the not debate at all. with, with uh, Biden and Trump and Biden made that comment about ending fossil fuels. And right. he, you know, Texas, they rely on, you know, the oil industry. Sure. So a lot it employs of, a lot of it people. It employs a lot of people. And it's not that people, I don't perceive them to be so opposed to the idea of renewable energy. I think the concern is don't make me obsolete. You know, that's right. Where is the retraining program going to be? Are they going to bring all the renewable energy plants to Texas? That's right. And these other, you know, and so it's it's like another answer that Democrats have to have to have a better answer for folks in those districts. And you're going to lose those working class Hispanics. Border security is another concern. Border security is a it's and it's it's going to be an issue on the California ballot, Mm -hmm. particularly with the suspension of Title Forty Two. Which may have been a bit of a Hail Mary for Democrats because you don't have this influx of immigrants coming over the border. You don't know yeah. what to do with this. So, yeah, I'm going to be watching a lot of the local press and see what's happening. Well, we are going to pay close attention to the uh, to the races in these eight states. And uh, it'll be a little bit easier for us next week because we can start to lay the groundwork for Jan- for June uh, the 7th. And then we'll uh, we'll talk a lot more about uh, those races on June 7th. Uh, we were joined here in the studio by Ray Valencia. Ray is a Sputnik News analyst, and she's also the producer of this show. Thank you so much. I don't think we should take a break. Yeah? No, we're going to power straight through. We yeah. have a bunch of stories uh, about technology and about media and social media to talk about with our next guest. We're joined by Chris Garafa, editor of techforthepeople.org. Chris, thanks for being here. Oh, great to be back. Thank you so much. So we've got privacy issues here. Uh, we've got secret backroom deals with Microsoft. We've got WhatsApp. Um, but I also want to start off with the media and social media implications of this terrible shooting at an elementary school in Texas. Um, 
I think, uh, as we discussed earlier in the show, there are a lot of elements to this tragedy, uh, including the the tension so many of us live under, the scarcity and expense of mental health resources and other forms of social support. Of course, the ubiquity of powerful firearms. Uh, but, you know, people also ask, what is the role of media and social media? You know, we we have to report these events. How do you do that without creating fame or at least infamy? How do you allow people to express themselves on social media without creating opportunities for monstrous acts to be glorified or to inspire mimickers? You know, is there an aspect of our national mass shooting affliction that is fed or supported by media, including social media? And, and, and what should we do about it? You know, what, what should the conversation be uh, among social media companies in particular? I, this is such a huge, huge thing, and it certainly is on my mind a lot. You know, I live in Connecticut, grew up here. Of course, Sandy Hook happened not far away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I actually lived down the street from an elementary school. So this morning, particularly hearing the kids playing outside and reading this news was just so, so awful. And and we have to think a lot about who, how are we representing these stories? And, you know, one of the things to do is focus on the victims, mm-hmm. not the you know, not the perpetrator. Um, They want, of course, a lot of that attention in so many cases, and it spawns copycat acts. And that's something that is well known. It's not just in um, heinous crimes like this, but also um, in the study of, you know, suicidology. Uh, You know, copycat suicides are also a thing when they're not properly Mm -hmm. reported in the media. So, you know, looking at the way that this already has been spreading on social media, I think we, we can't not also talk about the Buffalo shooting at the same time, right? Because social media companies had a really hard time shutting down the video. Only, you know, a handful of people watched the video of the Buffalo shooting as it happened, but then it spread and reportedly millions had seen it since, even though the companies were taking it down, um, you know, putting it up, you know, taking it down as soon as it was it was going up. And I think that that's also one of the major issues, you know, um, the troll site. And I think that's being generous to it for uh, Chan, you know, immediately last night started using the image of a living trans woman who doesn't live anywhere near the, you know, this school yeah. as you know, and saying, oh, this is the perpetrator. Right. Uh, and in fact, one of the I think it was the New York Post potentially um, was actually picked up that and published it in one of their stories and has since, I believe, has taken it down, uh, which they should. But it didn't stop Paul Gosar from jumping up and down on Twitter and making a fool of himself. Absolutely. And so that's how that spreads. And, you know, Paul Gosar probably knows that that was false, but it's very politically convenient for him to to spread that message. So. I think when we're looking at how to address these, we have to look at the social problems beneath them. And then how does the technology exacerbate them? So again, the the infamy. Yes, you want to, we want to understand and we need to understand who these shooters are, what happened. And criminologists and sociologists will study that. And I'm sure that will be a topic of discussion and study for quite some time in all of these instances. People want to know who was responsible and I think have a right to know who was responsible for these, you know, heinous acts. But we need to be we need to also talk about who the victims are. Mm -hmm. Don't don't plaster the names all over the place. Mm -hmm. Right. Like of the the name of the shooter. Don't put the photo up everywhere. Focus on the victims. And I've seen a number of Twitter threads today actually doing that. And I think in the immediate sense, that is, you know, one of the first things that media can do. Yeah. 
Hard to read without crying uh, when focusing on the victims is uh, 19, 10 year olds and nine year olds. But yeah, yeah. Um, Let's talk about another story that made something of a splash yesterday. At least I thought this was funny is not really a nice thing to say about an assassination plot, but nothing happened. They got caught. Uh, This is the the story, of course, of this alleged plot to assassinate George Bush. And I was just curious, Chris, your thoughts on the use of WhatsApp chats to track these guys who were, you know, accused of plotting this assassination. Forbes describes the use of the technology as demonstrating how the FBI despite its claims of being prevented from investigating major crimes because of tech providers' use of encryption, was able to work around WhatsApp security using old-school policing. Basically, it says the FBI got permission to get location information from AT&T about the alleged plotters, and it used a pen register on the WhatsApp account believed to belong to the chief suspect, uh, which helped them see how often the account was used, what numbers it was contacting, and whether or not it was active. So, I mean, it seems to me the 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 story here is that the FBI had time to go to a court and get a warrant for all of this. And so I guess I just want to say to you, does this sound inbounds? Well, unfortunately, it pretty much is inbounds. Mm-hmm. And I think going to court and getting that warrant uh, certainly doesn't isn't going to be that much of a uh, a uh, 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 tough thing to do for mm-hmm. the FBI in cases like this, but also in many, many other cases. So this is we're talking here about uh, an alleged member of ISIS or somebody with connections to ISIS, I think, is the way it's uh, uh, playing out was plotting with, to assassinate George W. Bush um, in Texas. He has been arrested and caught, and some more information is coming out, uh, even you know as the story develops. But yeah, so they, they were able to kind of tap into his WhatsApp chats. And WhatsApp is, is end-to-end encrypted, uh, the messages. So the FBI couldn't necessarily see the contents of his WhatsApp messages, but they could see who he was chatting with, how often they chatted, when they chatted, um, how many messages they sent back and forth. And of course, if you're chatting with an informant, then it doesn't matter if your message is encrypted because that informant is Mm -hmm. just going to pass it right back to the FBI. So in some ways, I mean, the FBI just used old fashioned police work. (laughs) Hey, what do you know? Right. So. Yeah, they didn't need to read the content of his messages because they had somebody on the inside, so to say. They had a CI, a confidential uh, CS, confidential source who they were working with in this case. And that is from what we have seen in the unsealed files. That is exactly how they figured out much of the story around this. And so every time we hear about a crime like this. And I think this this also ties back to the Buffalo shooter, of course, to yesterday's shooting, which we hear about the need or so-called need to attack encryption and weaken encryption so that uh, governments and law enforcement are allowed to track down the criminals. But of course, this shows exactly that that's not um, it's not necessary, first of all. Uh, And it would actually be a threat to all of us if the government were able to break through encryption or force companies to break it, as mm-hmm. they tried to do with Apple a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I mean, it sounds failed. like, yeah, no, here's yeah. an example. Look, you can, there, there are things that are allowable within our justice system that will allow you to use this technology to help further your case. It doesn't have to be a completely illegal vi- That's you know, right. violation of our rights to privacy. It doesn't have to crack into these uh, measures that are supposed to protect users. 
I wanted to ask Chris too. Um, Chris, is it possible for the government to to intercept a message as it's being typed and before it's encrypted with with the send button? That would require one of two things, you know, either a deep partnership with the company that made the software. Uh. They would have to build that into WhatsApp or iMessage. And that could relatively simply, you know, by researchers be found that it's, hey, it's sending your information to this weird server that's not Apple or it's sending the uh, raw information out. Right. The other way that the other way that this happens, though, is that, uh, you know, we've talked many times right about Pegasus. So the Pegasus software right. that the NSO group makes, right, it gets installed on your phone. You don't know it's there. It basically takes everything over. It can see what you're typing, what's on your screen, all of that. Uh, so that is certainly within the realm of possibility with something like what uh, what the NSO group sells. I see. Speaking of location tracking, uh, you know, this is this is a topic that we've talked about on the show a few times now, the uh, possibility that. Uh, app location tracking could actually be used to identify people who are seeking abortions or people who are helping people access abortions. And I am wondering if, you know, now that uh, some politicians are taking notice, if it could be abortion that forces the end of this comprehensive location tracking by apps that really don't need to do it. You had this week a group of more than 40 Democratic members of Congress write a letter to Google urging the company to stop collecting and retaining unnecessary location data for fears it could be used to identify exactly these people. Uh, The letter was written directly to Sundar Pichai. He's the chief executive of Apple, Google's parent company. And, you know, one, interesting that this is a letter from Democrats. Alphabet. Because, what did I say? Apple. Oh, sorry, of course, Alphabet. It's interesting to me that this is a letter from Democrats, as I would expect, uh, you know, conservatives who are supposed to be very concerned with protecting individual rights to have the same uh, issues with this kind of data collection. But maybe they are writing their own letters. Uh, But the letter notes that Google receives more than 11,000 geofence warrants a year. These are these warrants to show uh, where turnover data from users in a certain location at a certain time. And then they sort of look through that data and see if they find their their person. Interesting to me, I didn't know this. The majority of these requests come from state and local authorities, which is significant when we're talking about abortion, because these are these are the authorities that are going to be uh, enforcing state and local abortion laws. Uh, And so I wonder if you think, you know, abortion is is maybe going to make it hot enough for some of these uh, big tech companies to start changing their location tracking policies? Frankly, it's too little too late. Right. You know, this this is a group of Democratic senators, uh, Democratic representatives, and, you know, led, it says, by Ron Wyden, uh, who often speaks on uh, you know, policy uh, and privacy issues, and also um, Anna Eshoo of California. Uh, but this is it's not going to it's not doing anything right this is the us government this is congress mm-hmm. this is the party that has you know if for if all effective measures you know a, a majority it could right. and could do something if they wanted to and they're sending a nice letter saying hey please stop doing this thing that could be dangerous that already frankly is dangerous right um i am all for having google stopping you know its location tracking and storage absolutely but i say it's too little too late because it's not just google it is all of these other companies, there mm-hmm. are so many companies. It was in the news a couple of weeks ago, right after the draft uh, decision leaked, that SafeGraph and 
many, many mm-hmm. other companies are also storing this information and getting it just from the apps that you, you use mm-hmm. without you knowing. And you can turn off location services, but they can still track your kind of vague location, at least down to a city, possibly a neighborhood, even without location services being turned on. How can they so do that? The, Is it maybe based on? It's based on uh, the the IP address, the internal oh. like identifier that your cell provider gives to your phone. Uh, and there are many, you know, there's online services that can turn that into at least a city, not mm-hmm. not a specific address, but a city. Mm-hmm. And if you're kind of, you know, in a remote area, that city can be kind of, you know, potentially identifying mm. uh, along with all of the other information that's being collected on you. So. Sure, Google does need to stop doing this, um, but it's not. This is not the time to be asking nicely. <laughs> this is right. the time to be legislating and using the power that you have as elected officials. And that's why it's up to us to say, you know, Ron Wyden, Anna Eshoo, everyone else who signed this, and and especially everyone who opposes this letter. Time to do something about it because we are not going to let folks be arrested, be fined, be punished for even going near uh, a clinic, let alone, you know, actually having, you know, having an abortion, which right. is basically, you know, being punished for having access to, for getting health care uh, and being told on by your phone. Yeah. 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 No, I, this government really likes to ask uh, giant corporations very nicely to do things. And I have not seen it have any effect so far. So yeah, it would be good. Why do they, why start with Google? Is that just because it's sort of an easy is Google sort of being used here as a catch all for these other apps? Because, as you say, you know, it's it's not just Google. So even if Google stopped doing this, does that even make a meaningful difference when all of these other apps uh, are collecting data just because it's valuable? Yeah, I mean, if, if uh, anyone wrote a letter to, you know, SafeGraph or Ventel or Babel Street, it wouldn't get any attention because no one knows who they are. Right. Google is in the zeitgeist. Everyone knows who Google is and how scary it is, similar to Facebook. So I think that's that's why it's Google. I mean, it could be that they intend this to represent, you know, the entire industry. But I think we need something concrete. Mm-hmm. We don't need a letter that is, you know, uh, asking the people who fund you to do something nice. Let's also talk about, you know, on the topic of privacy, this controversy over DuckDuckGo and the limits of its tracker blocking, because, you know, DuckDuckGo advertises itself as the safe search option, the safe browser. It keeps you private. It doesn't track you. But users seem to have discovered that Microsoft has been getting a pass and it's not an accident, but the result of some kind of secret agreement between the two companies. So I wonder if you could explain what users have discovered here, this carve out for Microsoft and what it means for DuckDuckGo and for people who thought that they were, uh, you know, that they were using a a safe, secure, protected search engine. Yeah, well, I just want to just so everyone is clear, and I, I have recommended DuckDuckGo in the past, and it's still one of the Google alternatives for search that I do recommend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the issue here is actually with their web browser app, which they do try to push you towards mm-hmm. if you use their service on on uh, your phone, right? They try to say, okay, install our browser. It's more secure. But it turns out that because of the financial deal that they have with Microsoft and DuckDuckGo basically lives from that, uh, that they aren't blocking Microsoft's trackers when you use their browser with tracking protection turned on. So meaning they could be blocking 
Google. They could be blocking Facebook, all of the other ones. But if there's a Microsoft tracker and remember, Microsoft also owns LinkedIn mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. Microsoft also has their own search service called Bing. So they will still send all of those tracking requests from the websites that you're on out to LinkedIn and Microsoft and Bing. And it's just it's a a carve out that DuckDuckGo has made in their app Mm -hmm. in order to uh, continue to be funded and have this partnership with Microsoft. I was not surprised to see this. I think, you know, you have to wonder, how does a company like DuckDuckGo exist when, you know, yes, they have some ads, but, you know, they're not the ad tech business Mm -hmm. that, you know, Google is, right? Um, They're not making nearly as much money from ads as somebody like Google or Facebook. Mm -hmm. And they're not targeting those ads. But turns out if you use their browser, they are helping somebody else target ads at use elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm still trying to get my head around what it actually I mean, DuckDuckGo still still better than the other ones when it comes to not tracking you. But I mean, I guess you say you're not surprised because how else are they going to make enough money to stay in business? Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, how do you run a, you know, significant sized website like this and have the engineering resources to keep it up and to improve it uh, without having some kind of financial partnership like this? You know, it's mm-hmm. not like they're collecting donations. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not, you know, out there as a um, a community effort. And I think that would be a whole different kind of situation, right? If we had a community run search engine where people volunteered time or there was some sort of, um, you know, investment, but a hands off investment from mm-hmm somewhere, maybe a nonprofit that we're able to say, okay, you're going to use this money to keep this running, but we're not telling you what to do with it. We're not saying you have to, you know, mm-hmm. unblock anyone. That would be a whole different situation. But yeah, again, in this kind of, you know, situation where Google, I'm sorry, where Microsoft mm-hmm. is supporting this company, DuckDuckGo, uh, you have to expect that Microsoft is getting something back. They're getting something. Is some of this, does some of this really have to do with, I guess, uh, tech tech uh, literacy, because I know uh, DuckDuckGo representative uh, Gabriel Weinberg, maybe he is the CEO. He's saying, look, we never promised anonymity, right? That's not possible. We just promise, you know, about third blocking third party tracking scripts, et cetera. And so is some of this, you know, as you say, you weren't surprised because if it's going to be funded by this big company, this company is going to be getting something out of it. Is this maybe getting uh, more attention than it deserves because there was an, an expectation that was unfounded about how much privacy DuckDuckGo could actually provide? Yeah, Weinberg, uh, who is the CEO and right. co-founder, um, he has been all over Twitter the past couple of days. Mm-hmm. If you look at his tweets and replies, it is just like he's just searching everyone who's mentioning DuckDuckGo and replying with like, this isn't about our search. This is about our app, as mm-hmm. if that makes it that much better. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what he's been what's happening here is, yeah, people I mean, well, DuckDuckGo pinned, you know, pushed itself as the anti-Google. Yeah. We're not tracking you. We're not, you know, providing this information on you. Uh, We're not selling your information. Well, maybe directly they're not, but they're not preventing other people from doing that, which is exactly what we know Google does. So if you're going to present yourself as the anti-Google, as the solution to Google's privacy issues, then people are going to have realistic expectations of why that is. I mean, it does raise a sort of fundamental issue here, which is that data has become incredibly valuable. Yes. 
You know, data is incredibly valuable and it's going to be incredibly tempting for any company to collect it and try to sell it. And if they're not able to do that, yeah, what do you do you have like you know, like a browser supported by Patreon subscriptions or something, you know, user supported browsers like this is, the, you know, this is the the oil, right? This is the gold of, of the Internet. And so I, I think it kind of comes back to, well, yeah, what else is the point? I mean, even Gmail. Uh, I was reading uh, Yasha Levine's great book, Surveillance Valley, uh, talking about the the evolution of I think it was the Surveillance Valley. It could have been another tech deep dive I was reading, but just about how, you know, the even the evolution of email, uh, part of that uh, was designed to generate more data from users that could then be collected and sold. And so, yeah, it's a it's a sort of fundamental issue here that if you want in order to be profitable, it seems like they have to sell some kind of data. Right, Chris? Right. It's And it's so interesting to look at at, G, at Gmail, mm. because when it you know, when it first came out, people were like, I don't want Google reading my email, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and as more people were signing up for it and more people were also saying, I'm not comfortable with Google, you know, reading all my email. And Google had to come out and say, well, it's not a person reading your email. No person has access to your email, which is a tricky Right. term to use because their computers can still read your email and figure out what advertisements to sell you. Right. Uh, so just because a human isn't going to read it doesn't mean that their computers can't. So they, they used very, very carefully picked wording uh, when they were trying to reassure people about the contents of their email. Yeah. Or just because a human's not going to read it first doesn't mean one won't eventually. That's right. Let me ask you before we let you go, Chris, just about this story on Spotify bringing back political ads. Uh, Spotify ended them in 2020. I don't recall ever encountering a political ad on Spotify, but I suppose it's kind of a big deal since it has a lot of users. Um, The issue here seems to be that Spotify is not developing a political ad archive like the ones Meta and Google set up after 2016, which I guess is, uh, you know, an attempt to create a permanent record of these ads and and who paid for them. And so I want to ask how how significant is it that Spotify is now going to carry political ads? I mean, I don't know who's going to be buying them. And then how significant is it to have these ads without this kind of archive that other tech companies have decided they, they want to create in order to, you know, maintain a record? Well, I thought this story was particularly interesting because as we're getting into the midterms this year, and of course, looking towards 2024 and the will he, won't he, you know, questions around Trump, the social media companies and the big media companies, I mean, you know, Spotify, Google, Twitter, Reddit, all of them really have to consider what are they going to be doing about political ads? Because remember, they were all say, you know, basically caught saying, oh, we, you know, Russians took out ads on all of our platforms, and that was the cause of the, you know, the Trump victory and blah, blah, blah. And it's, I mean, of course, that turns out not to be true, but no one wants to admit that. Um, so now they're going to they're be going back into advertising. Facebook is, a lot, is letting it happen. Twitter is. So many other platforms are. Yeah, I mean, some of them have these archives, and that's fine. You can see what the ad was, how many people saw it, you know, those kind of details. Um, and they're doing more verification 
of advertisers. So in fact, you know, I, I manage a couple pages where I can't even promote a, a post because they're somewhat political pages, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, it's actually getting in the way uh, of many people trying to promote their content on Twitter and Facebook. Mm. Um, in terms of, you know, Spotify political advertisements, it's actually a very small portion of their advertising, mm. of the advertising that they had done in the past. But I think as more people use Spotify, as more people are getting, you know, not just music, but also podcasts. And that's a key thing. As Spotify mm -hmm. continues to expand its podcast offerings, people are more likely to be okay hearing an advertisement during a spoken word podcast than, you know, between their favorite songs. I, so I think the reach is going to increase for these advertisements um, on Spotify. I think it is interesting that it's not going to be during the music. It's only going to be during podcasts. And also they, they will be targeted to particular issues. So if you're listening to a true crime podcast, it might be interrupted by a, a candidate going, hey, I'm, you know, Bob, whatever. I'm going to be hard yeah. on crime. You're Long listening order. to a podcast about haunted dolls. It'll be, right. hey, my name's, my name's Jimbo and I'm anti-ghost. Vote for me for whatever. Uh, Chris, so, I mean, how... I, this is the first I've heard about these political ad archives that like uh, Meta and Google have set up. I mean, how long? What are what are the rules around these? How long do they last? Like, what, how much use are they get? Are they just sort of going to, you know, fall by the wayside as 2016 and and Russiagate sort of recedes into the rearview mirror? I think they're going to be around for quite some time. I think. Facebook has particularly has put the resources into building it. It doesn't take that much to maintain something like that, especially when they're being so strict about who can even publish a political ad on their system. So I think they're going to be around. I, I think they're going to get less attention as time goes on, but they're available for researchers and researchers have done some very interesting work in looking at who is responsible for certain ads, what ads are getting the most and least attention, where are they being shared and things like that. It's a valuable resource to have while we still have to deal with political advertising on social media in general, particularly so we can look and see, you know, is that ad really from a grassroots candidate or is it from some super PAC uh, with really shady funders? Mm -hmm. So that is, it actually is valuable information so long as we still have to put up with these political ads. Very good point, Chris. That's why we have you on all the time. That was Chris Garafa, editor of techforthepeople.org. Uh, Chris, as always, thanks so much for your time. Great. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we are getting into a couple of interesting legal stories here. One that has been sort of snowballing, right, getting getting more and more attention as it does have the ability to really affect our administrative state, potentially the sort of regulatory environment we live in, and uh, the injection of politics into previously relatively apolitical 
parts of that state and that uh, ecosystem. The other is a potentially very significant ruling on uh, the death penalty and what exactly uh, what kind of um, appeals process, uh, what kind of quality of counsel uh, convicted criminals have a right to and what courts can and can't weigh evidence, even if a lower court or the uh, counsel in a lower court has been demonstrated to be poor. Uh, joining us for these conversations is Greg Moson. He's a state and federal court litigator in private practice in Maryland at Moson Law, and he's the author of Employee Rights in Maryland, A Concise Guide. Greg, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. The first case I want to ask you about, uh, I saw a headline calling it Thunder from the Fifth Circuit. It's a ruling that was handed down by this uh, notoriously conservative appeals court that has the potential, according to some people, to undermine our current system of regulation. Uh, the government agency in this case is the Security and Exchange Commission. The Fifth Circuit found that their use of administrative tribunals to assess and punish infractions, in this case, securities fraud, violated the alleged offender's rights to a jury trial. And as a non-lawyer, that seems to be the most significant aspect of this case because it makes me think, okay, well, what if, you know, if the EPA can't go, hey, look, you're dumping chlorofluorocarbons into this stream. Our experts have assessed this, this is indeed your pollution and we are fining you $100,000. If instead every instance like that has to go to a jury trial, I mean, that seems... At, at best, cumbersome, right? And potentially really disastrous. And so I wanted to ask uh, first, you know, this, this Fifth Circuit opinion, does it potentially threaten the way many industries are currently regulated or are people maybe getting too worked up? Uh, thanks for that question. Um, I have good news on that front. Um, yay. So I, I reviewed the opinion. Yay, there is good news. It's a much narrower opinion than that. Um, but before I get into it, I think there's some other good news, which is, and you guys do such a great job of, of speaking intelligently about these very difficult issues, but if people, um, dare they say, want to read the opinion, which is called Jer Jarkarski versus the SEC mm -hmm. out of the Fifth Circuit on May 18th, 2022, they're going to be cheered, at least by the fact that it's a very well-researched well thought out, um, not necessarily 100% correct, that could be for the Supreme Court to decide, but it's certainly um, a well-researched, well thought out, extensive 30-page opinion with a dissent that considers what's really the constitutional structure of the country and is, and is very difficult for the media, whether it's in two minutes or in a 300-word article, uh, online to, to, to boil down. Mm -hmm. But so I think that's kind of good news because these things do kind of get blown up mm -hmm. and, um, hashtagged and Twittered and Facebook around, but press your question. Um, the opinion's a little bit more narrow in terms of government enforcement. And what it says is, thinking about trial by jury and thinking back to the colonial fear of tyrannical government, that is, the Constitution has a Seventh Amendment providing trial by jury mm. uh, against 
in the background what was a government by a king. Thinking about that, um, what the what this opinion really says is like if the government, whether it's the SEC or the Environmental Protection Agency, wants to issue an injunction and say, do not destroy that forest, do not harvest those trees, do not uh, cease and desist uh, marketing your hedge fund um, as a conservative one when you're actually engaging in risky investments, or even, um, which is considered an equitable remedy under law, give back the fees that you've charged uh, in your hedge fund, which is precisely what was ordered here, mm -hmm. uh, because you overcharge or you charged improperly. All that could continue. The government, the federal government in particular, can continue to do those enforcement type um, proceedings and regulations and, and, and issue those orders, mm -hmm. um, regardless of this opinion. What this opinion did say, though, which was if in addition to an injunction, if in addition, this involved a hedge fund uh, financial advisor, in addition to, in fact, barring them from being a financial advisor, mm -hmm. in addition to ordering them to give back fees to people, um, or in the other scenario I put, uh, stopping the you know, harvesting of a forest before whatever further procedure occurs. Mm -hmm. In addition, if you want to find from the government, if the government's going to say, in addition, pay us $300,000 in civil penalties, which is precisely what was ordered here, mm -hmm. that penalty um, for various constitutional reasons sounds in the common law and requires a, a, tr a trial by jury because it is precisely that kind of penalty um, within that, this kind of a fraud claim that the founding uh, members of, of, of America said uh, in the Seventh Amendment um, is required by a trial by jury. So, so a lot of things can go forward. Yeah. I just want to ask to clarify. So the administrative law judges or these, these administrative tribunals and processes, they can still identify an infraction, they can order a company to stop doing a wrong thing that it's been assessed as doing. And it can order, I guess, uh, you said, you know, pay back the money that you've taken. Uh, you, you can order some restitution to be made. What you can't do without a jury is to apply further punishment than just, you know, I guess, g giving back the money that you took for this fraudulent uh, investment or something like that. Is that. Does that make sense? Is that what you're... Yeah, and there could be further technicalities to it, but it does. It's mm -hmm. in addition, the the ALJs, the specific SEC ALJ here, um, could order them to give back their fees, but they cannot, without providing a trial by jury, right? Say, and in addition, pay the federal government three hundred thousand dollars right. as a civil fine. That's what cannot be done without providing a jury right. But I also think practically, so getting back to your original question, and I'll just bring in very briefly the uh, Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial, uh -huh. which is a lawyer I've been trying to tune into because it's quite fascinating um, from a legal perspective. Um, you know, practically speaking, a jury trial um, is, is, is a, an enormous bear to handle. And so I think that even within seeking fines from um, various alleged wrongdoers like the hedge fund manager who is alleged to have defrauded investors in this case, um, the, the, you know, a lot of them would agree to an ALJ. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them might not want to go before a jury. And for the illegal expense alone, uh, let alone the publicity, possible publicity mm-hmm. in the, you know, not everything's televised, but nevertheless, a, a jury trial in a state or a federal court is going to be have a lot more publicity. So there's a lot of ways in which procedurally um, the SEC and other government agencies, even if falling within uh, this case and pursuing fines, um, will settle cases, can negotiate cases and simply give them an option and say, look, you want a jury? We'll have it mm-hmm. because the SEC does try cases. And in fact, the majority opinion here noted that. Mm-hmm. Let's also ask about another aspect of this decision. And I will say that the sort of non-lawyers I know got more concerned about the possible implications for regulation. The lawyers I know have all focused on the uh, introduction of politics into these administrative processes, because as I understand it, um, it, it also the decision would remove protections that these administrative law judges who hear these cases, as well as in this case, SEC commissioners, it would remove protections they have from being um, fired for anything but good cause. So the Fifth Circuit found that that, those protections undermined the power of the executive, the president, who under Article 2 of the Constitution has the ability to ensure all laws are faithfully executed. And so the court found that protecting these judges from removal without good cause violated that constitutional stipulation. And so the the concern is that it could, you know, make way more of these positions basically uh, political appointees and inject way more politics into these regulatory bodies. And I think that was also something that, that stuck out to you. So h- how important is this aspect of the decision? Well, that's a legal sea change aspect of the decision, okay, yeah. if, it, if, it's, if it stands. And I, I, I believe that the uh, federal government, the uh, Solicitor General's office, the Department of Justice will appeal that to the Supreme Court. And I do believe uh, the Supreme Court has, I would be shocked if they didn't hear it because uh, this is a Fifth Circuit opinion that would basically say, as you put, um, for cause protection for administrative law judges. Uh, which go way beyond the SEC. There are Social Security administrative law judges that simply handle uh, disability benefit matters. It's mm-hmm. one of the largest ALJ uh, bodies in the country. There's an immigration enforcement ALJ judges mm-hmm. who handle uh, asylum seekers and other types of immigration, contested immigration matters. It's That's just an increasing body of ALJs. There's Department of Labor ALJs, uh, which... Uh, um, the dissent notes have been upheld within the Ninth Circuit as saying they don't invoke this exact problem that the majority um, says it invokes. But let's take a bigger view of it for a second, just to understand it. And kind of, again, because in the this opinion goes back to the founding of the country, back when the president may not even have been in Washington for 12 months of the year, mm-hmm. um, didn't, you know, the staff was all, was much smaller and, and um, the president could very easily, you know, much more easily make the, uh, affect the laws because they appointed everybody. In fact, uh, historians call it the spoil system. You know, it was it was well known that the president appointed um, and fired people based on political their political party. And when the new administration came in, um, 
there was much less people in the country. There was much less people on earth. Mm -hmm. And um, they, the executive branch was very much uh, a commanding, a more command and control branch, but of course, subject to geography uh, in the mail pony express. <laughs> but to update it uh, in the 20th century, the administrative, you know, our country got bigger people there and the administrative state came in and the conservative or libertarian um, thinkers in our country have worried about not just necessarily the tyranny of ancient history, uh, at least in terms of King George, um, but the administrative bureaucracy becoming something that people can no longer control. And it's that tension that this opinion um, states uh, attacks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the I find the dissent persuasive in that, in this opinion, because ALJs um, do not create policy. So what this opinion says is the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, the president could appoint them. But once they're appointed, they can't be fired except for good cause. Mm -hmm. And so the president's appointment power is a little bit, the removal power is a little bit limited. And the idea is that we have experts in the Department of Labor, in the Security Exchange Commission, in these various places. And we want those experts to act with the Federal uh, Communications Commission, the FCC. We want those experts to act with some expertise, not just according to what President Biden, uh, President Trump, President Obama, or one of the President Bush's thinks. Mm -hmm. um, what this opinion says, but the ALJ is beneath them. These are administrative law judges. So the SEC brings an enforcement action, and then the evidence is heard in this case here by an administrative law judge. They're not making policy. Yeah. They're not choosing to enforce anything. They're just finding out, is there grounds for enforcement? Mm -hmm. So what in the past, that's simply been permitted. Um, I think what the majority opinion overlooks is that those administrative law judges have for cause protection. In other words, they can't be fired except for cause, not because the president is paying attention to what happens in an enforcement procedure in Georgia mm. involving a toxic cleanup or a hedge fund. It could happen, but might not. It's what happens if they make a decision and one of the commissioners or one of the agency officials doesn't like it mm -hmm. and wants to fire that that ALJ? Mm -hmm. So the ALJs have internal protection within the agency so that they're neutral or protected from total bias mm -hmm. within the agency. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that structure has been around for decades, and it's, in this opinion, attacks it. Does this uh, fit into sort of a larger pattern of trying to trying to give power back to the executive? You know, you hear a lot about, I guess, the, the Federalist Society and other, um, you know, con conservative think tanks, uh, conservative groups that are, you know, ha have been on a decades long project to do just that. Uh, it's interesting to me, though, because I remember also a lot of complaints about um, King Obama uh, abusing the authority of the executive. And so I wonder if you can talk, like, is there a sort of coherent effort uh, by some elements in, in the United States to restore power to the executive? And is there, is there some principle behind it? Or is it just sort of all in hopes that you, you eventually get a conservative executive who can then use this power? 
I think it's a great question. Um, generally speaking, and not looking at this opinion yet, I do think that there is a, a section of the conservative movement um, that is frankly dangerous mm -hmm. that believes that executive power, uh, sometimes it's called the unitary executive theory, um, needs to be stronger and stronger and stronger. And I, and I could still recall when George Bush II's attorney general, I think his name was Mr. Gonzalez from Texas, was stating that George Bush could go to war in Iraq without congressional approval, mm -hmm. uh, which goes to the heart of this idea of the unitary executive theory, but uh, contradicts the structure of the Constitution that plates, places the war-making power in Congress. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I think that, that there is that, um, that out there, and, it, and it's, it is a form of theoretical attack on the balance of power, the, ba the checks and balances structure of the Constitution uh, that that is dangerous, uh, and that is that we've seen in the last two decades. Um, I, in this opinion, it's interesting that you bring that up. Mm -hmm. This opinion would play would bolster the executive control of the federal government. The opinion, though, relies on the trial by jury idea and how. If how if you're gonna if the government's gonna impose a civil penalty, that person subject to it or company subject to it has a right to trial by jury. And in this specific case, uniquely somewhat, it the S the Security and Exchange Commission had the sole discretion to choose a federal court or an administrative law judge. So in other cases, what the federal agencies could simply do is give the person subject to enforcement that choice. And as I noted with the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp uh, trial, and mm -hmm. as anybody could see, the trial's going on for weeks and weeks and weeks over the simple matter what, of defamation. Not that it's entirely simple, mm -hmm. but it's going on for months right. with multiple right. lawyers. I mean, many people will not choose a jury trial. So yeah. Um, but going to your question, which is sort of keen, even though this, this opinion does not uh, uh, justify itself by any sort of overt um, call to strengthen the president's authority, it certainly could play into it. Yeah, Greg, I had wanted to get into this Supreme Court decision on uh, the death penalty in Arizona as well. But the first case was so meaty and complicated. I think we're not going to have time for it. We'll have to have you back on here to, to talk about it uh, sometime later on. But I want to thank you. That was Greg Mawson. He's a state and federal court litigator uh, in private practice at Mawson Law. He's the author of Employee Rights in Maryland, A Concise Guide. Uh, Greg, thanks. Thanks for joining us. We're going to go straight through to the end here on Political Misfits because I have a few last headlines. And, John, I know I told yeah. you I sent you on a hunt for some, but then I found something. Can I please do? Can I please give you a headline? I'd love uh, to hear it. Wendy's is uh, Wendy's and McDonald's are being sued. Did you see this? This class action lawsuit yeah. in U.S. District Court uh, com complaining that they exaggerate the thickness of their beef patties in advertisements. <laughs> 
uh, that McDonald's, in fact, uses undercooked patties and ads to make them appear bigger than they are. Uh, that they're actually 15 to 20 percent larger in these in these photos that you see in magazines of these incredibly mouthwatering uh-huh. versions, uh, burgers and the ones that they serve to customers. And it quartz has a pretty funny uh, story showing visual evidence that has been presented in the case of pictures of these beautiful cheeseburgers. Beautiful. Beautiful yes. hamburgers and cheeseburgers uh, advertised by McDonald's and Wendy's. And then the actual burgers, which are uniformly hilarious, just <laughs> squashed, sad looking. One is an employee holding a burger. Just like, yeah, I don't know, man. This is what you bought. That uh, don't look too good. I will say the classic McDonald's cheeseburger doesn't look too different from the presentation. But all the rest that are piled with crispy bacon, cheese running down, sauce oozing suggestively over the sides uh, is nothing like what you get. So I, I am in full support of this lawsuit. I think it's outrageous that they could show these artistic renderings of burgers that have never existed in reality. It. Yeah, it's great. I've got a couple, too. All right. Um, the New York Times is reporting that on January 6th, when Donald Trump was watching the news and People at the Capitol were chanting, hang Mike Pence, Mm -hmm. hang Mike Pence. Um, Trump said to Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, they should hang Mike Pence. What? And wouldn't send help to to help Pence escape. Now, Pence, of course, had his service, Secret Service protection, and he did escape. Meadows went into an adjoining room and said, Trump just said that they should hang Mike Pence. Like, what should we do about it? And they all kind of hemmed and hawed and said, oh, Pence is going to be fine. Uh, But then Meadows chief of staff has confirmed to The New York Times that Trump did indeed say that he was fine with Mike Pence being hanged by the mob that day. Is anyone surprised at this? Trump is (laughs) Trump said we should kill the families of people suspected of terrorism. Yeah. Right. Didn't Trump say we should uh, maybe consider whether nuclear weapons would be useful against hurricanes? Hurricanes. Was it nukes or was it just conventional weapons? I'm not sure which. I don't know. man. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, what an incredibly irresponsible thing to say, whether or not you think it was serious. I don't think that Trump really really did think a crowd of people should hang my No, I, I think but he didn't. But this is a very Trump very thing to do. Irresponsible and yeah, also irre- entirely uh, predictable. I'm not surprised. Two other really quick things. Please. Uh, the New York City um, Transit Authority has issued subway tickets that have notorious B.I.G.'s photo on them. Right. Biggie Smalls, the famed rapper. This would have been his 50th birthday today. He was assassinated years ago. Um, They made 50,000 of these things and people stood in line all night long to get them. They were out in an hour and now they've been popping up on eBay for as much as five thousand dollars each. Wow. Yeah. So if you're a Biggie Smalls fan. You're out of luck on this. John, I think you're going to have to save. Can you save that other story for tomorrow? I'll save it. And it's a good one. So I will save it for tomorrow. See, there's something to look forward to, folks. Oh, we're out of time. Ending a sad show on a note of hope there on John's funny story for tomorrow. I want to say thanks to all the guests that joined us uh, and thanks to the producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.